Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratam Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratam Data. Chapter 13, England under Richard I, called the Lionheart. In the year of her lord, 1189, Richard of the Lionheart succeeded to the throne of King Henry II, whose paternal heart he had done so much to break. He had been, as we have seen, a rebel from his boyhood, but the moment he became a king against whom others might rebel, he found out that rebellion was a great wickedness. In the heat of his pious discovery, he punished all the leading people who had befriended him against his father. He could scarcely have done anything that would have been a better instance of his real nature, or a better warning to fauners and parasites not to trust in lion-hearted princes. He likewise put his late father's treasurer in chains and locked him up in a dungeon from which he was not set free until he had relinquished not only all the crown treasure but all his money too. So Richard certainly got the lion's share of the wealth of this wretched treasurer whether he had a lion's heart or not. He was crowned King of England with great pomp at Westminster. Walking to the cathedral under a silken canopy stretched on the tops of four lances, each carried by a great lord. On the day of his coronation, a dreadful murdering of the Jews took place, which seems to have given great delight to numbers of savage people calling themselves Christians. The king had issued a proclamation forbidding the Jews, who were generally hated that they were the most useful merchants in England to appear at the ceremony, but as they had assembled in London from all parts, bringing presents to show their respect for the new sovereign, some of them ventured down to Westminster Hall with their gifts, which were readily accepted. It is supposed now that some noisy fellow in the crowd, pretending to be a very delicate Christian, set up a howl at this and struck a Jew who was trying to get in the hall door with his presents. A riot arose. The Jews who had got into the hall were driven forth, and some of the rabble cried out that the new king had commanded the unbelieving race to be put to death. Thereupon, the crowd rushed through the narrow streets of the city, slaughtering all the Jews they met, and when they could not find any more out of the doors, on account of their having fled to their houses and forcing themselves in, they ran madly about, breaking open all the houses where the Jews lived, rushing in and stabbing or spewing them, sometimes even flinging old people and children out of window into placing fires that lighted up below. This great cruelty lasted four and twenty hours and only three men were punished for it. Even they forfeited their lives not for murdering and robbing the Jews, but for burning the houses of some Christians. King Richard, 
who is a strong, restless, burly man with one idea always in his head, and that the very troublesome idea of breaking the heads of other men was mightily impatient to go on a crusade to the Holy Land with a great army. As great armies could not be raised to go, even to the Holy Land, without a great deal of money, he sold the crown domains, and even the high officers of state, recklessly appointing noblemen to rule over his English subjects, not because they were fit to govern, but because they could pay high for the privilege. In this way, and by selling pardons at a dear rate and by varieties of avarice and oppression, he scraped together a large treasure. He then appointed two bishops to take care of his kingdom in his absence and gave great powers and possessions to his brother John to secure his friendship. John would rather have been made regent of England, but he was a sly man and friendly to the expedition, saying to himself, no doubt, the more fighting, the more chance of my brother being killed, and when he is killed, then I become King John. Before the newly levied army departed from England, the recruits and the general populace distinguished themselves by astonishing cruelties on the unfortunate Jews, whom, in many large towns, they murdered by hundreds in the most horrible manner. At York, a large body of Jews took refuge in the castle in the absence of its governor, after the wives and children of so many of them had been slain before their own eyes. Presently came the governor and demanded admission. How can we give it to thee, O governor? said the Jews upon the walls, when, if we open the gate by so much as the width of a foot, the roaring crowd behind thee will press in and kill us. Upon this, the unjust governor became angry and told the people that he approved of their killing those Jews, and a mischievous maniac of a friar, dressed all in white, put himself at the head of the assault, and they assaulted the castle for three days. Then said Joseph, the head Jew, who was a rabbi or priest, to the rest, Brethren, there is no hope for us with the Christians who are hammering at the gates and walls, and who must soon break in. As we and our wives and children must die, either by Christian hands or by our own, let it be by our own. Let us destroy by fire what jewels and other treasure we have here, then fire the castle, and then perish. A few could not resolve to do this, but the greater part complied. They made a blazing heap of all their valuables, and when these were consumed, set the castle in flames. When the flames rode and crackled round them, and shooting up into the sky, turned it blood red, Joseph cut the throat of his beloved wife and stabbed himself. All the others who had wives or children did the like dreadful deed. When the populace broke in, they found, except the trembling few cowering in corners, whom they soon killed. Only heaps of greasy cinders, with here and there something like part of the blackened trunk of a burned tree.
but which had lately been a human creature, formed by the beneficent hand of the Creator as they were. After this bad beginning, Richard and his troops went on in no very good manner with the Holy Crusade. It was undertaken jointly by the King of England and his old friend Philip of France. They commenced the business by reviewing their forces to the number of 100,000 men. Afterwards, they severally embarked their troops for Messina in Sicily, which was appointed as the next place of meeting. King Richard's sister had married the king of this place, but he was dead. And his uncle Tancred had usurped the crown, cast the royal widow into prison, and possessed himself of her estate. Richard fiercely demanded his sister's release, the restoration of her lands, and, according to the royal custom of the island, that she should have a golden chair, a golden table, four and twenty silver cups, and four and twenty silver tissues. As he was too powerful to be successfully resisted, Tancred yielded to his demands, and then the French king grew jealous and complained that the English king wanted to be absolute in the island of Messina and everywhere else. Richard, however, cared little or nothing for this complaint, and in consideration of a present of 20,000 pieces of gold, promised his pretty little nephew Arthur, then a child of two years old, in marriage to Tancred's daughter. We shall hear again of pretty little Arthur by and by. This Sicilian affair, arranged without anybody's brains being knocked out, which must have rather disappointed him, King Richard took his sister away, and also a fair lady named Berengaria, with whom he had fallen in love in France, and whom his mother, Queen Eleanor, so long in prison, you remember, but released by Richard on his coming to the throne, had brought out there to be his wife, and sailed with them for Cyprus. He soon had the pleasure of fighting the king on the island of Cyprus for allowing his subjects to pillage some of the English troops who were shipwrecked on the show and easily conquering this poor monarch, he seized his only daughter to be a companion to the Lady Berengaria and put the king himself into silver fetters. He then sails away again with his mother, sister, wife and the captive princess and soon arrived before the town of Acre which the French king with his fleet was besieging from the sea. But the French king was in no triumphant condition, for his army had been thinned by the swords of the Saracens and wasted by the plague. And Saladin, the brave sultan of the Turks, at the head of a numerous army, was at that time gallantly defending the place from the hills that rise above it. Wherever the united army of crusaders went, they agreed in few points except in gaming, drinking and quarrelling, in a most unholy manner, in debauching the people among whom they tarried. Whether they were friends or foes, and in carrying disturbance and ruin into quiet places. 
The French king was jealous of the English king, and the English king was jealous of the French king, and the disorderly and violent soldiers of the two nations were jealous of one another. Consequently, the two kings could not at first agree, even upon a joint assault on Acre. But when they did make up for their quarrel for that purpose, the Saracens promised to yield the town, to give up to the Christians the wood of the Holy Cross, to set at liberty all their Christian captives, and to pay 200,000 pieces of gold. All this was to be done within 40 days, but not being done, King Richard ordered some 3,000 Saracen prisoners to be brought out in the front of his camp and there, in full view of their own countrymen, to be butchered. The French king had no part in this crime, for he was by that time travelling homeward with the greater part of his men, being offended by the overbearing conduct of the English king being anxious to look after his own dominions and being ill, besides, from the unwholesome air of that hot and sandy country. King Richard carried on the war without him and remained in the east, meeting with a variety of adventures nearly a year and a half. Every night, when his army was on the march and came to a halt, the heralds cried out three times to remind all the soldiers of the cause in which they were engaged. Save the Holy Sepulchre! And then all the soldiers knelt and said, Amen! Marching or encamping, the army had continually to strive with the hot air of the glaring desert, or with the Saracen soldiers animated and directed by the brave Saladin, or with both together. Sickness and death, battle and wounds were always among them, but through every difficulty King Richard fought like a giant and worked like a common labourer. Long and long after he was quiet in his grave, his terrible battle axe with twenty English pounds of English steel in its mighty head was a legend among the Saracens. And when all the Saracen and Christian hosts had been dust for many a year, if a Saracen horse started at any object by the wayside, his rider would exclaim, What dost thou fear, fool? Dost thou think King Richard is behind it? No one admired this king's renown for bravery more than Saladin himself, who was a generous and gallant enemy. When Richard lay ill of a fever, Saladin sent him fresh fruits from Damascus and snow from the mountain tops. Coldly messages and compliments were frequently exchanged between them, and then King Richard would mount his horse and kill as many Saracens as he could, and Saladin would mount his and kill as many Christians as he could. In this way, King Richard fought to his heart's content at Arsuf and at Jaffa, and finding himself with nothing exciting to do at Ascalon except to rebuild, for his own defence, some fortifications there which the Saracens had destroyed, he kicked his ally, the Duke of Austria, for being too proud to work at them. The army at last came within sight, 
of the holy city of Jerusalem. But being then a mere nest of jealousy and quarrelling and fighting, soon retired and agreed with the Saracens upon a truce for three years, three months, three days and three hours. Then the English Christians, protected by the noble Saladin from Saracen revenge, visited our Saviour's tomb and then King Richard embarked with a small force at Acre to return home. But he was shipwrecked in the Adriatic Sea and was fain to pass through Germany under an assumed name. Now, there were many people in Germany who had served in the Holy Land under that proud Duke of Austria who had been kicked, and some of them, easily recognising a man so remarkable as King Richard, carried their intelligence to the King Duke who straightaway took him prisoner at a little inn near Vienna. The Duke's master, the Emperor of Germany and the King of France were equally delighted to have so troublesome a monarch in safekeeping. Friendships which are founded on a partnership in doing wrong are never true. And the King of France was now quite as heartily King Richard's foe as he had ever been his friend in his unnatural conduct to his father. He monstrously pretended that King Richard had designed to poison him in the East. He charged him with having murdered there a man whom he had in truth befriended. He bribed the Emperor of Germany to keep him close prisoner and finally, through the plotting of these two princes, Richard was brought before the German legislature, charged with the foregoing crimes and many others. But he defended himself so well that many of the assembly were moved to tears by his eloquence and earnestness. It was decided that he should be treated during the rest of his captivity in a manner more becoming his dignity than he had been, and that he should be set free on the payment of a heavy ransom. This ransom the English people willingly raised. When Queen Eleanor took it over to Germany, it was first evaded and refused, but she appealed to the honour of all the princes of the German Empire in behalf of her son, and appealed so well that it was accepted, and the king released. Thereupon, the King of France wrote to Prince John, Take care of thyself. The devil is unchained. Prince John had reason to fear his brother, for he had been a traitor to him in his captivity. He had secretly joined the French king, had vowed to the English nobles and people that his brother was dead, and had vainly tried to seize the crown. He was now in France, at a place called Evreux, being the meanest and basest of men, he contrived a mean and base expedient for making himself acceptable to his brother. He invited the French officers of the garrison in that town to dinner, murdered them all, and then took the fortress. With this recommendation to the goodwill of a lion-hearted monarch, he hastened to King Richard, fell on his knees before him, and obtained the intercession of Queen Eleanor. 
I forgive him, said the king, and I hope I may forget the injury he has done me as easily as I know he will forget my pardon. While King Richard was in Sicily, there had been some trouble in his dominions at home. One of the bishops whom he had left in charge thereof, resting the other and making in his pride and ambition as great a show as if he were king himself. But the king hearing of it at Messina, pointing in the regency, this Longchamp, for that was his name, had fled to France in a woman's dress and had there been encouraged and supported by the French king. With all these causes of offence against Philip in his mind, King Richard had no longer been welcomed there by his enthusiastic subjects with great display and splendour and had no sooner been crowned afresh at Winchester than he resolved to show the French king that the devil was unchained indeed and made war against him with great fury. There was fresh trouble at home about this time, rising out of the discontents of the poor people, who complained that they were far more heavily taxed than the rich, and who found a spirited champion in William Fitzosbert called Longbeard. He became the leader of a secret society comprising 50,000 men. He was seized by surprise. He stabbed the citizen who first laid hands upon him and retreated, bravely fighting to a church which he maintained four days until he was dislodged by fire and run through the body as he came out. He was not killed though, for he was dragged half dead at the tail of a horse to Smithfield and there hanged. Death was long a favourite remedy for silencing the people's advocates. But as we go on with this history, I fancy we shall find them difficult to make an end of for all that. The French war, delayed occasionally by a truce, was still in progress when a certain lord named Vidomar, Viscount of Limoges, chanced to find in his ground a treasure of ancient coins. As the king's vassal, he sent the king half of it, but the king claimed the whole. The lord refused to eat the whole. The king besieged the lord in his castle, swore that he would take the castle by storm and hang every man of his defenders on the battlements. There was an old, strange song in that part of the country, to the effect that in Limoges an arrow would be made by which King Richard would die. It may be that Bertrand de Gourdon, a young man who was one of the defenders of the castle, had often sung it or heard it sung on a winter night, and remembered it when he saw, from his post upon the ramparts, the king attended only by his chief officer, riding below the walls, surveying the place. He drew an arrow to the head, took steady aim, said between his teeth, 
Now I pray God speed the well arrow, discharged it, and struck the king in the left shoulder. Although the wound was not at first considered dangerous, it was severe enough to cause the king to retire to his tent and direct the assault to be made without him. The castle was taken, and every man of its defenders was hanged, as the king had sworn all should be, except Bertrand de Gorton, who was reserved until the royal pleasure respecting him should be known. By that time, unskilful treatment had made the wound mortal, and the king knew that he was dying. He directed Bertrand to be brought to his tent. The young man was brought there, heavily chained. King Richard looked at him steadily. He looked as steadily at the king. Knave, said King Richard, what have I done to thee that thou shouldest take my life? What hast thou done to me? replied the young man. With thine own hands thou hast killed my father and my two brothers. Myself thou wouldst have hanged. Let me die now by any torture that thou wilt. My comfort is that no torture can save thee. Thou too must die, and through me the world is quit of thee. Again, the king looked at the young man steadily. Again, the young man looked steadily at him. Perhaps some remembrance of his generous enemy Saladin, who was not a Christian, came into the mind of the dying king. Youth, he said, I forgive thee. Go unhurt. Then, Turning to the chief officer who had been riding in his company when he received the wound, King Richard said, Take off his chains, give him a hundred shillings, and let him depart. He sunk down on his couch, and a dark mist seemed in his weakened eyes to fill the tent wherein he had so often rested, and he died. His age was 42, he had reigned 10 years. His last command was not obeyed for the chief officer flayed Bertrand de Gordo alive and hanged him. There is an old tune yet known. A sorrowful air will sometimes outlive many generations of strong men and even last longer than battle axes with 20 pounds of steel in their heads by which this king is said to have been discovered in his captivity. Blondel, a favourite minstrel of King Richard, as the story relates, faithfully seeking his royal master when singing it outside the gloomy walls of many foreign fortresses and prisons, until at last he heard it echoed from within a dungeon. He knew the voice and cried out in ecstasy. Oh, Richard, oh, my king. You may believe it if you like. It would be easy to believe worse things. 
Richard was himself a minstrel and a poet. If he had not been a prince too, he might have been a better man, perhaps, and might have gone out of the world with less bloodshed and waste of life to answer for. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.